M11FS. I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, we discuss whether Brexit really is more of an opportunity than a threat to fintech. Seven in ten UK workers are chronically broke, while US millennials are seemingly more financially secure. And we speak to Pension B CEO Romy Savova about her open letter to Aegon, accusing them of bullying. All this, and oh, a lot more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We're here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Jason Bates, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues and co-hosts, Simon Taylor, David Breer, and uh, back for his second appearance, 11FS Pulse and Research Director, Ross Gallagher. How are you doing, guys? Really well. Babyface Ross. Oh, sand beard. Yeah, yeah, that happened. It's coming back through, but even though it's stubble, it's not quite a beard yet, is it? You do know that without beard, like, you just can't work at 11FS. <laughs> or in fintech. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Laura and Veronique just objected. Dangerous. Seems a bit gender biased, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you think so? Yeah. Is there's, that a- there's quite a lot of tuts in the room there now, I'm going to be honest. There's a lot of Eastern European talent that's quite uh, open to coming to work for us, actually. I've definitely flown in the face of what was some really good advice from Simon at one of the After Darks, which was, if you want to get on, learn about something nobody knows about and grow a beard. So sorry, Simon. <laughs> That's basically it's my like, entire career. I don't think career. we've ever started a show with such dangerous banter. I, I mean, we're, we're just about to get pilloried by everyone. Four sips into a beer as well. I, I like uh, only Michael can save us on the edit of this one, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. Joining us today, we have Fluidly CEO Caroline Plum, OBE. I always like to add that at the end. Nice to see you again, Caroline. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being nice to be back. And Capco's Charlie Wood. Welcome back to the show. Is it my sixth sixth time here? I don't know. Six, yeah, I think it's like, six now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I want to get my own chair. We, we should start doing something like a, you know, like third time on, it's like the hat trick ball. Like nice. sixth time on, it's like a personalised t-shirt. They're like, there has to be some sort of swag. Am I going to have to dance? Is that what's going to happen here? <laughs> are we dancing or are you dancing? I, <laughs> and maybe we can make ranks. You know, we can actually give you like status titles, depending on how many times you've been in. Right. To stop us from getting into another three hour show. Let's get on with the news. Okay, so first up from Business Insider, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Alex S. Adam Afrie, who heads up Parliament's fintech group, says Brexit is more of an opportunity than a threat. I mean, God, you got, got always look on the bright side of life, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I, I get this that's coming out of Treasury at the moment. You, you've kind of, well, not Treasury, but out of anyone in government, you, you have to try and make a go of it. You, if you're going to try and do something at this point, you've got the Brexiteers who see this as their kind of like, yay, we've got what we always wanted, let's implement some policies. But the reality, I think, is that pretty much nothing is happening in government at the moment because everything's distracted by Brexit. What I like about this is it's a message of like, well, actually, let's just get on and do stuff, which I think is quite interesting. This is the same week, though, that all of the leaks of the government's views on basically we're either a screwed, screwed or we're screwed, right? Is that the same? But I think particularly on this one, Simon, there was actually a really quite a fun quote from you on this one, wasn't there? This is a fun quote. On Fintech Insider News, I said, um, I think they're trying to make uh, chicken salad out of chicken shit. Eloquent. Yeah, uh, and that's just made us into an explicit podcast. Thanks for that. Uh, Box text. So <laughs> it was you, you know that now notes. the whole of India can't download this episode. Yeah. Laura's fault. Producer Laura, that's all your fault. Caroline, Caroline. Now, you've been a, you're, you are or have been a fintech ambassador um, for the government. Is that right? Yes, business ambassador, yes. So please, 
please give us a give us a positive spin on this. Uh, well, well, I'm an entrepreneur, as you know, and uh, I think entrepreneurs are about sunk cost. It's gone. It's gone before. No point worrying about that anymore. So focus on the opportunity and upside. Right. That's my official line. I think in terms of subtext, so this is what I interpreted um, him as saying. It was, will there be obstacles? Absolutely. But fintechs have this incredible will to innovate. They'll get over it. And with great struggle comes great opportunity. It's not a great line, but... Did you just quote Spider-Man? I think he did. <laughs> kind of rephrased it, rephrased it. Charlie, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I was, I was a, a bit more verbose and I was thinking, well, if the economy crashes, then Britain becomes cheap labour. <laughs> so, I mean, on that the side, it could be good. a boom in fintech. Labour arbitrage. But the only thing is, where does our labour come from? It's maybe not natively grown. I don't know. That's a hard argument, right? Yeah, and that whole visa piece you mentioned about how there's you know, more visas and they're doubling the number of visas. I mean, actually, I looked the numbers up. There's only 1,000 exceptional talent visas. Uh, anyway, so they're doubling it to 2,000 oh and only God. 200 of those are going to be in digital tech. So It's a material difference on 70 million people, right? Well, exactly. exactly yeah. Yeah. So if I can try and put um, a spin on it from what I think their perspective is, uh, they, I, I guess there's, there's when you're away from regulation, you potentially have the opportunity to invent your own regulations. You become a sort of offshore to Europe and, and a way in, but also uh, there's an opportunity to do things that may move in a different directions that may suit the financial services sector. Uh, there, there may be things that they can do. But obviously, to do that, you first have to figure out how you actually get through Brexit and become uh, your own uh, country and, and stand on your own two feet. But there, there may be opportunities for things that you couldn't do before in terms of... Uh, uh, corporation tax maybe there are other policies that you can bring in for the city um, but how do you balance that need to be uh, kind of the market and gateway into Europe whilst at the same time being a position of regulatory arbitrage from Europe it's uh, it's trying to compete with Luxembourg and Dublin I guess yeah and we haven't seen that dip in investment have we you know we're, everybody was worried about that I, I think it's probably slightly optimistic to go that this is an opportunity but actually we just don't know yet do we and I, I think um, I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot more over the coming months I'm but sure we'll we pontificate know. around things that are completely ambiguous it's for a long we time do, isn't it? a long time um, but something that hasn't had so much positive press open banking uh, MoneyWise this week produced a report uh, a survey that said that three in four MoneyWise users wouldn't use open banking. What do we think of that? I think open banking as a concept is never going to be palatable for people. I think the debate around privacy and security is just going to like continue to rumble on until someone actually builds something that improves my day-to-day -day life. I think if you ask the question, uh, would you like Apple and Google to track your location 24-7, people would go, no, Absolutely. hell no, that seems weird. But if you ask the question, would you like uh, a free and simple navigation app on your phone that helps you get from A to B in real time and gives you real-time directions, they'll say, oh, that's pretty cool, but mm, I don't know. But then if you show it to them and they use it, they, they just start using it. And it's that difference between uh, kind of telling you about how the thing works and showing you the thing at the end. I completely agree with that. I remember like saying everybody with AirPods looked like they were idiots and now I wear them all the time. Exactly. And I still look like an idiot, <laughs> but they're really helpful. So like, you know, I kind of think to your point, until you sort of experience it and see the difference, even if you don't know it's butter, but it's actually butter or it's not butter, whatever that saying actually is, then I like, I think it's actually given the purpose, then you're good. Did, did you just compare 
open banking to AirPods. <clears throat> I completely did. Did you L- just compare night, open banking to butter? I did. <laughs> L- last night... Utterly butterly. Uh, this, this is going to be a slight tangent, but last night I did a presentation and somehow I ended up referring to Legacy Banks as Cherry Chapstick. And, like, it went down really well, so I need to now unpick what the hell I actually meant. So uh, I think you have this, like, whose line is it anyway thing where someone from the audience shouts something random and you, you find a, a metaphorical way of building it in. Bizarrely, me and Simon did talk about this the other day. We, so we were, we were watching a Dave Chappelle comedy thing, and he started it like that. And now it's just a challenge I throw down to myself. So I, I do my do that. It's fun. Doesn't it feel like a, like a question a bit like the Brexit question, though? Would you use open banking? Would you use a transistor? I don't know. What's it good for? And then, of course, you know, a little while ago, we had, do you want to be in the EU? I don't know. What's it good for? And it's like, why can't you frame questions in a meaningful sense that means something? Consumers are really terrible at telling, you know, giving... What they say and what they do are totally different things, and especially when it's something in the future. I mean, most of my friends, if I asked them if they're going to the pub tonight, like, if they said yes, they wouldn't necessarily show up, right? So it's a huge skew. But I think it's a real worry because you're kind of losing the sort of PR battle around open banking more worryingly. There's sort of like a, should be a big marketing force, a big kind of agenda around it, and all we hear is negative stories. I totally agree. It's lacking that sort of positioning as a positive end user yeah. use case. We're talking about very abstract things. And at the moment, in the absence of a great positive spin, then the yeah. press is just picking up the, hmm, electricity. Yes, that would be useful in people's homes, but boy, it could kill people. And it could actually make your house explode. What? It's like, oh yeah, let's like let's do that. Now who's Mr. Doom and Gloom? <laughs> <laughs> but is that not it? That actually we're talking about infrastructure, but actually the, the use cases for why it might be valuable are just absent from that narrative. And it's not in everyone's interest to make it a very positive, friendly, you know, place and success of it. And I think the void um, that people are not putting a positive story is just being filled by all this negative... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, open banking could be a panacea, right? But, but, it, but it really could. <laughs> well. But, it, but it, could, it could for everybody. I think that's the thing. The, the reason why they're doing it is not to cause anybody disservice other than the customer giving them optionality, right? So I, I think, is this not a complete failing, though, of the open banking piece, that actually they're not going out there and spending more time actually em- educating people of what the benefits is? Like, you know, the people who are running this should be out there talking to the press. They should be talking to, what was this in, uh, you know, whether it's the FT or whether it's whoever it was who created this poll or whether whatever papers it is, just to give that positive vibe. I feel like there's a lot of people scratching around for what's the proposition, what's the proposition, and what's the proposition and trying to either sell or build or make the proposition and then then there's a lot of banks sort of sitting back going oh, I don't know I don't understand I don't quite get it and all of it feels like David you've been saying this for a long time it all feels like stick where's the upside and you probably need to show people the answer and there's this story story to steal your thunder Jason for moving us on but in the negotiator um, about hey, who's running this podcast well I, I just think it was a nice segue yeah yeah and I, I saw that I was about to do it but no you you go ahead like go ahead open banking makes its day view in the rental market following new credit ladder launch. Jason, what's this one about? (laughs) (laughs) So Credit Ladder says that it's the first in the sector to launch an open banking service that enables tenants to improve their credit score without the need for a lengthy sign-up process. And basically what they're doing is the the job or they're taking an AISP license or the ability to for a an individual to give a third party access to your banking records. And in return for that, you say to Credit Ladder, sure, you can access my my statement, my current account. They look for you paying your rent, and then they feed that off to Experian, who then say, ah, that's something that you're paying regularly. It's a bill, therefore you're more credit worthy. So I guess it's interesting that it's it's a, a use, you know, the ability to grow 
uh, your credit score without taking out a loan. Um, but it's a very specific use case, I guess. But it's a good news story, and maybe that just doesn't work in the press, Caroline. I think it's a really good use case, actually, because I think when people think about what innovation might stem from it, they kind of think about the same but better, same but faster, same but cheaper. But I think what's really interesting about this case is it's different. And I think that's really, really when you get the innovation. You're doing something differently. It's going to be new use cases that people haven't necessarily thought of before. And that's where you're going to get the innovation. But I guess this is just one data point from your current account. And actually, your credit score is often currently based on credit you've taken out or accounts that you've had or utilities that you're signed up for. It's a very small set of of data to make lending decisions on. Maybe, but it's probably an attack vector for something much bigger, right? And sure. you have a kind of chink that you enter a market on, and it seems like a good a good entry point. Completely agree with that. I think, like you say, it's it's starting somewhere and then actually proving it. And, and you know, where this will lead to, we, we're not really sure. I think it speaks to a real flaw in the process, though, which is over-reliance on credit scores. And credit score really, and it's what we've talked about, is really just a rough proxy, and it doesn't have access to all of those data points. Why isn't the fact that I'm paying my rent regularly as relevant as I'm paying my credit card regularly? And Jason, I know we've had a lot of conversations around sort of um, the idea of progressive approach to like the customer relationship and actually moving beyond that proxy and making credit worthiness decisions based on a relationship with the customer. And I think that's a great idea. And that that process um, actually would be great, wouldn't it? You know, the more information that you give to somebody, the better your the better service you're going to actually get from that. That feels like actually a very sort of balanced trade, doesn't it? It's remarkable I have any sort of career inside financial services at all because I hate the centralization of things and credit scoring agencies are one of the things I really dislike. Why aren't those algorithms totally open source? Why isn't it a case of this is how we work out whether or not you're credit worthy. You have the you have some credit against your name and you have a regular repayment schedule. You, you get a 700 score based on these activities, based on these reactions to what you've got and you can apply that across whatever data source you have access to. But if you make everything open source, then people ultimately gain it. You know, it, to a certain extent, there is an argument for a Google-like algorithm which is actually we'll start working it out and if you actually are credit worthy we'll work the algorithm to find that out without explaining to you exactly but if you're is it how it paying works back your rent that's a pretty good that means you are pretty good to loan money i've got to pay my rent back every month in your face <laughs> take that equifax <laughs> like have that but i think there's also uh, there's a uh, customer acquisition angle here that people miss on on being an AISP. Uh, once that data becomes available and you're sucking in other data and comparing all of those together, are banks thinking about this in terms of customer acquisition? Are they thinking about it in terms of customer retention? Because if you're helping people improve their credit scores, that's a relationship with a customer that you didn't have before. That's a, a surprise and delight thing that you can do for a customer that you couldn't do before. And and both of those things you can see on the PL. Well, it'd be interesting from a bank's perspective you know you bank with i don't know rbs and they turn around and say actually if you let us use this data as per gdpr in order to build your credit score then actually we can actually feed this data into the uh, credit scoring agencies and without you uh, actually taking a loan out we can be building your uh, your credit score if only there was a fintech that's doing that wait there was what was it like a week ago or two weeks ago zopa just released the fact that they're using open banking data in order to give you a better credit decisioning engine it's awesome and i think just knowing what fintechs do is half the battle because a lot of this amazing stuff is already happening and that this example from from this story about uh you know credit ratings and that example from zopa and there are many more like it is why i think often the hard part is is knowing what's already happening well someone who's stepping back from that fintech world is Anthony Thompson, who's just stepped down as chairperson, chairman of Atom. What do we think about this? Are they going to have to rebrand? 
Wasn't it A. Tom, Anthony Thompson? Yeah, was that? I, like, I never knew that, the whole thing, you know? If that's true, then we've got Bridget Roswell, <laughs> so Bros Bank, uh, is about to appear. It's I'm, perfect. I'm not sure Bros Bank is really going to go down well <laughs> with at least half of the population. Surely it'd be um, B-Rod. Yeah. I thought, this was, um, I thought this was a really interesting one, but actually I thought the statement that he made, I wasn't sure... Like, depending on how I read it, whether it was like a negative tone or not. So a source said that Mr. Thompson had decided to leave Atom. And I nearly read it at Tom then because of what you've just put in, like, inceptioned in my head. Um, now that is gone. Now that it's gone from being a big idea to a small bank. So I think there's something in this in so far as they've probably gone from being one of the most exciting prospects in the world of fintech a couple of years ago to falling behind the likes of the Starlings and the Revoluts in terms of product offering and partnerships. Well, that's how I read it. It sounded like a diss to me. Yeah, I think so. And I, I kind of like that. Like, he stepped down because he had, a, he had a dream and a vision about how he was going to totally change the way that we do banking in this country. And then he saw that the implementation wasn't going to marry up to that. And he left it's, based on his principles. But isn't that his fault? Well, that is the problem of being at the top, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I still say, though, I, like, I... I know um, I know we laugh a lot about Will I Am and whatnot in terms of doing the the things there, but but fundamentally I think Atom are just playing a completely different game than, than other people actually are. And actually, if you look at the the profitability in terms of the amount of products that those guys are selling, they're way beyond where um, somebody like a Monzo or a Starling actually uh, actually is. Now they're not doing current accounts and they're not making a, a lots of sort of sexy noise about it, but they're selling a shit ton of products. So like, by selling I, products, you mean like lending and being top of the league table in terms sure. of saving price comparison but they're but they're playing the bank's game against banks i don't think there's actually anything wrong with that and actually if we, it comes to the point where they get a, a really big exit in having started something and exit it in four years because bbva come in and buy it like laughing all the way to the bank type thing so well done them i am interested in seeing what the peer-to-peer -peer lenders do on this one because those those guys everybody else has gone from the deposits 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 that's how we're going to get into the market and then work out what's to, how to do lending but lending is harder and so when those peer-to-peer -peer lender guys come in and start being like hmm let's take deposits in order to fund our peer-to-peer -peer lending that's when the market's going to go it's going to explode i reckon but peer-to-peer -peer lenders haven't really exploded if if anything they've stagnated you know there was a lot of talk of peer-to-peer -peer lending doing super well and growing and expanding um but i don't have figures with me but they've not you know they've not set the world on fire and is that because of a deficiency in the deposit taking side how do you fund your balance sheet when you don't have deposits i think it's a really interesting question you limit your scale you get immediate growth but actually uh, funding that balance sheet gets really expensive really quickly and that's why i think a lot of organizations are now uh, who had been in the lending space and now starting to look at the banking license as their next step so not only do you have the the people who started with the current account and moving to lending you've got the people that start with lending moving to current accounts because Zopa did the same, right? Uh, and you can only try and sell on the secondary market that, that debt so many times before it gets expensive. So as one fintech chairman steps down, another stands up, defending himself valiantly against Aegon. So Pension B has taken a stand. Uh, the fintech has hit out at corporate bully Aegon. Apologies for Aegon if I'm mispronouncing your name. So uh, looking at the open letter, uh, pulling out a, a few details, um, the CEO of uh, Pension B has said that they're, in their experience of completing over 10,000 transfers with best-in-class providers, I think there's a bit of a diss there as well, mm -hmm. including Aviva, Legal and General, Prudential, Scottish Widows, Standard Life, it normally takes them about 12 days or less, given the electronic transfer that they do. But the average transfer out of Aegean, 
thank you, uh, is currently takes about 54 days. And they're a bit puzzled about this because up until the 8th of June 2017, it, the electronic transfer process with Ejon, they did it for 300 customers. It was absolutely fine. And now it just seems to take a long time with multiple discharge forms, telephone calls, repetitive requests for information. Is this a, a big boy bully? The process was easy and then suddenly got hard after a lot of people moved out of one pension into another. Hmm. Very suspicious. Thinky face. Well, someone who probably knows all about it is the CEO of Pension B. And we spoke to Romy Savona, like it's just so difficult to pronounce this stuff today, uh, about what he, what she had to say. Oh, it was a she. I said he earlier in the story. This is like the second time I've I've made you like a sexist a gender, bastard, you. unconscious a gender bias. issue. Like did, did she have a flash going on? I think. Oh my word! <laughs> she should be part of Bros Bank. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Romy, can we hear what you've got to say? I'm apologies. Thank you for coming on. So we're here to talk today a little bit about uh, kind of an open letter that you wrote to Aegon. But before we get into that, uh, just remind us who Pension B are. So Pension B is an online pension manager, and we help people to find and combine their old pensions, maybe from a previous job or just an old pension that they set up and have lost track of into one new online plan that they can see on their phone at any time and easily manage. So add contributions, forecast retirement incomes, and just generally be on top of their pension savings. And pensions can be a complicated world if you've worked in in many companies as we do now. But it seems like some people have tried to uh, use your service and uh, had one challenge with a particular provider called Aegon. So, So what's happened here? That's right. Um, normally our service is incredibly fast and efficient because most providers use digital electronic transfer systems. Aegon, however, have taken it upon themselves to, I guess, lodge our mutual customers into a paper quagmire. And so when a customer tries to transfer a pension from Aegon to Pension B, they will be sent multiple sets of discharge forms, uh, which is industry jargon for complex paperwork um, that ask them really difficult and hard to understand questions. Um, And they'll be subject to several phone calls. And if they don't respond to those phone calls, it could be that the entire transfer is cancelled and they have to start all over again. And this is very much out of line with the way that the industry behaves. Um, So most uh, providers and best in class providers like Aviva, Legal in General, Standard Life, um, Scottish Widows and so on will use an electronic transfer system to transfer pensions in around 12 days. Uh, Aegon is a total outlier. Um, in this respect. And so we've decided to challenge them to modernize their transfer process with respect to Pension B. I I respect calling out bad behavior where we see it. And uh, I guess the wider context here is that the the UK government is concerned that people are losing track of pension savings as they move from job to job. And there's over 400 million pounds of lost savings at at last count. Uh, When we see behavior like this, it could be um, a bit of a step backwards. And uh, like, do we think that um, this is just bad processes that they hadn't woken up to and dealt with or do we think there's actually some some kind of uh business model here around being hard to deal with is what what do we think's going on here 
Well, I guess on your first point, I mean, yes, this is a huge challenge to automatic enrollment, uh, which is the government's plan to get people saving by having employers enroll their employees into a workplace pension. Now, most people switch jobs around 11 times. Um, and so what ends up happening is they leave behind these pensions. And if they can't easily combine them in their uh, chosen pension later on, um, then they might become completely divorced from that money. Um, and so providers like Aegon, who make it difficult for savers to take control of their money, for example, by combining their pensions with pension B, are really endangering the principles of auto-enrollment. Um, and so completely agree, it's a huge challenge. Why they're doing it, um, frankly, remains to be seen. Um, we, you know, we've written an open letter to them, um, hoping for some sort of clarification. Um, but unfortunately we've gotten a standard corporate response, um, that simply says that they're, they're at the forefront of technology and that their, um, processes are appropriate. Now I've left out parts of the response, but those were, you know, the parts that stood out to me. Um, so you know, it's difficult to say what their actual motivations are. Uh, it's it's uh, difficult to suss and, and certainly difficult from where I'm sitting to try and understand uh, why that this is, is continuing. But it's certainly something that I hope we see to change. Well, uh, if listeners are interested uh, in the idea of Pension B, where can they go to learn to find out more about what it is you do? Uh, well, they're very welcome to come to our website, which is www.pensionb.com. Um, and browse any of our helpful materials around pensions, around our service, um, and just generally have, have a look around. We'd be delighted to help you, whether you have an Aegon pension or any other type of pension. Fantastic. Well, Romy, thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. Very welcome. So thanks there. It was great to hear from Romy. And as always, let's hear from our sponsors. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. This episode of Fintech Insider News is brought to you by TopTal. Doug McKay approached TopTal to access their network of talented developers after he ran into trouble working with developers through a budget agency. And then they landed me with uh, a gentleman who I now view as a friend, uh, Luke, uh, who's at TopTal. And there it was, I was wasting time trying to save money. We have to solve these problems that my contractors in Belarus have done. And uh, within 20 minutes of interviewing this gentleman, I'd hired him, I'd given him the keys to the kingdom. That was about 11 o'clock in the morning, and by two o'clock in the afternoon, he'd already fixed it. We launched uh, the application, Sidekick, in uh, November at Web Summit in Lisbon. All done by, really, myself and one developer. All from one talent, the top talent set me up with. So it was a, it was a phenomenal experience to go through that. TopTel access their exclusive network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts to find the right person for your business. I understand what my 
end mission is and my requirements. And then I let TopTel kind of coach me into what the best solution would be. So I rely on them to uh, not just be a uh, remote job board, but more of a business partner where they're trying to understand my business. TopTel is coming in as a person who's an expert who can hit the ground running and give you insight immediately. There are other things like, yeah, I'm, I'm now pivoting my business from purely DevOps standpoint into marketing and sales. And now I'm beginning to wonder like, okay, TopTel, do you have anybody who can do marketing for me? <laughs> <laughs> I view them as a key partner. Um, they streamline my uh, workforce lookup cost. And ultimately, uh, we can profit together. And I think uh, that's where most better business relationships are, right? Uh, if you're buying something that's totally disposable, you're not valuing it. And, and I think with TopTel, it's not disposable. If you're hiring into a key project or looking for the next star hire, check out TopTel at TopTel.com. This episode of Fintech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powdered food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel. Often when we're slaying legacy and building some awesome propositions, we literally have no time to eat. I know that sounds crazy, but it is true. But we still want to be healthy and Huel is really good for this. Huel is quick, affordable, and a great alternative to grabbing yet another crappy sandwich or worse, skipping meals entirely. And luckily for us, it only takes about 30 seconds to make. We throw a few scoops into one of the four blenders that David has bought since uh, becoming an, a Huel addict. I love the blend. What can I say? <laughs> add the powder to the water, add a little bit of ice and a couple of bit of flavoring. And it has all of those essential vitamins and minerals that just keeps you going through the day. Unlike some other supplements that I've tried before, it tastes really good as well. I think my favorite right now is probably either the matcha tea one or the banana one. I kind of throw a double espresso in one of those bad boys and you are good to go with something pretty special. You're becoming like a Huel ninja with your flavorings. I'm just, I, I just do a bit of ice, uh, espresso occasionally, a bit of dark chocolate, and I am set. It's got that mocha thing to it. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their product. So if you want to learn more, head over to www.huel.com. And even better, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code from your first order just for you, our FinTech Insider listeners. Head to my.huel.com slash fintech, enter your email, and you'll get a discount code for £10 off. Huel have never done this before with anybody, so get in there quick and claim your discount today. Huel, it's our kind of fuel. Did you just, like, invent a tagline for I them? did. I know I did do that. I don't think you meant to do that. We'll see what happens. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. And as a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We're good people normally, and we build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out, you can find us at 11FS.com and connect and, I guess, berate me on Twitter at 11FS team or drop us an email to hello at 11FS.com. The 11 Media team who produce this podcast also produce InsureTech Insider, a new show on our network bringing you the latest news, insights and trends in the insurance industry, as well as human stories and societal impact behind the policies. Subscribe now on iTunes or on your favourite podcast clients. 
Now on with the show. Where can we go next? Who knows? Well, let's start off with The Guardian. Seven in ten UK workers are chronically broke. So the RSA studied or created a study around 2,000 UK workers and found that 32% of the UK's workers have less than £500 in savings and 41% have less than £1,000 in savings. So that seems like a, a pretty low figure. Yeah, it's pretty tough times in the UK. Like, despite all of the optimism about Brexit that we were talking about earlier on, then uh, it appears nobody would be um, well enough off to actually go to Europe, it turns out, right? And I think this is an opportunity for people who can design great solutions. So I spoke to the folks at Pocket earlier, and there's several other fintech apps that are dedicated to trying to do this. And they are talking to these uh, customers. They are understanding the problems. And the bigger banks really struggle to work with this kind of customer base. If anything, I think they're quite predatory and would try and get rid of these customers, frankly, and never really admit to it, but would would try and see them off their back books because they've got a high operating cost. Whereas actually, if you work with them, if you help them become financially literate, even, uh, then you can bring them into being profitable as you grow with them. And I think it's a shame we don't see more of that. But is there not two two parts to this? Firstly, we've had like a great time in the stock market. Everyone's doing you know particularly well. Sure, we've had uh, lots of people. Uh, we haven't had like a, a, a recession for a few years. Got a crash. Sorry. <laughs> Throw back to last week's episode, anyone? It's going to crash. It's going to crash. So we've we've had like a long period without this hard recession. So maybe people are less uh, feel less the need in order to put a bit of money aside in order to help them in the hard times. But then there's the other side of are people re- saving for their long term financial needs, for pensions, for you know what happens when they retire. Or, or is it that the sort of a huge inequality in the wealth distribution and actually a large number of people are really struggling despite the run in the stock market? I think it's that. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the, the richer continually getting richer and, and unfortunately the, the poorer are continually getting poorer. And uh, I think to your point, Simon, it's actually the uh, inability for big financial organisations actually to deal with that, both from an educational perspective, but it purely even from a operating cost perspective to make these people even remotely acceptable to them. So, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, big organisations operating costs are just completely prohibitive to doing anything other than the, the sort of standard norm on this one. It was my fat man slide that is going to take a lot of context for everybody that makes no sense but i'll explain it on twitter uh that actually that middle rump is massively adhered to but even the 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 wealthiest clients are not really being met with digital services they're being papered over by uh very uh fancy people with lovely briefcases and nice suits whereas the the poorest people are just being almost ignored charlie I'd like to see what they mean by savings. Uh, do they mean cash sitting in some cash account? In which case, if this story read that 45% of the population have £20,000 in these these cash savings accounts, then you could flip that on its head and say 45% of the nation are financially literate. Because that is a bad thing to do. Keeping cash around is probably the least efficient thing to do with any I value. I want to lose 3% you should a year. Sink it. <laughs> Exactly. You should probably sink it into something that's about a higher value asset. It'd be interesting to see how this plays out across the slightly broader that's spectrum a really of good point. assets. Because maybe these people all have houses, in which case, God damn it, they're doing better than I am. But who knows? Um, I suspect maybe that's, that's probably not true, but uh, I feel like there's lots of holes in the data. I don't know. I, I think it's really quite worrying. You know, I think that 41% of people are potentially, you know, very precarious. 
in their finances. And I don't think they probably have huge houses and £20,000 in their high-performing stock account instead. You know, I think it's a bit of a sad state, really. And there's been a big push by the FCA recently around vulnerable customers, because I think that's what we're talking about. It's people who are doing okay, but a big shock in some respects is going to send them over the edge. And then the question becomes, so, you know, what to do about that? Because while you might say, well, it's about financial literacy, hey, we've got Google and YouTube. If you really wanted to be literate, you could go out and find videos and information about that. But I don't think people do. Like, people don't care. I don't think it's just about literacy though to a certain degree as in understanding what apr is i think it's the fact that the finance you know you say this all the time the the financial services industry is fundamentally a, a set of bear traps to catch you out and and that's the problem with it is that most of the like i'm one beer in here so careful where with where i'm going with this one but like literally it, it's a it's an exercise in punitive charges around things that people fundamentally need just to exist so i think banking is you know it's not a um something that should be um, a privilege. It's like a human right now to be able to act on these things. And nobody's saying we don't want banks to make money, but I do think that the business model itself is a conduct risk. Completely. And because the business model around fees is there to support aging infrastructure, it's the aging infrastructure itself that creates that conduct risk. Agree. But is it really about financial literacy at all, or is it the fact that there's just you know, these are workers, two thousand workers, and you know structurally there's not enough financing to manage it's not it might be highly literate but so i think generally um i'm going to try and find the study but generally financial literacy is is terrible so i was talking to the money advice service earlier today and they were saying eight million people in the uk don't know what apr is i mean that's that's horrendously bad if you consider that's what a a decent chunk of the the uk population maybe 15 20 percent so uh financial literacy is a massive massive problem but also accessibility of these services is it a part of your daily life do you uh especially if you're an immigrant and you've got cash in hand work how do you become part of the system and how do you start saving and how do you move up i think there's another angle as well about consumerism and the need to spend and to spend what you earn you know i found this uh, uh simon will tell you i'm obsessed at the moment with this reddit sub community called um fire financial independence retire early and some of these guys are like saving um 60 70 percent of their salaries you know they're on thirty-three thousand dollars a year in the u.s and they're finding all kinds of ways in order to put money aside to reach some number which means they can retire you know and they're not talking about big numbers they're talking about something that means they can retire on twenty thousand dollars a year Uh, but you can see them find and really push towards that am i going to buy you know lunch at uh tesco's or sainsbury's or m&s or boots or am i going to make a sandwich and take it into work you know they're they're really driving that and i'm i'm just not sure that the general population uh I, i think that they're into buying stuff and spending what they earn Oh, I'm just not sure. I think there's a substantial part of the working population that simply did not have the means to make those choices. You're not about whether I go to press or make my own sandwich. It's like, do I have do I eat? funds? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think we're our little ivory tower. We're in a subtext, aren't we? And the, yeah. the simple fact of the matter is, uh, how, do, how do living costs compare to wages? Yeah. And there's obviously a disparity there. And But unfortunately, any disparity there, whether it be positive or negative, is fueled completely by the religion of consumerism, which is how capitalism carries on in the future. And so I do kind of see the point, and I also think it's messed up. How do we fix it, though? Because ultimately, banks are there to make profit. They're there to make money from people in these things. ICOs. So, 
Uh, it's obviously the answer to everything. But it's a, is a bank, does banks have a moral obligation to actually get involved and help communities in this way? Because, you know, that I, I think that's the thing. Is bank, are, are we putting, are we projecting something onto the banking industry that actually they're not there to do? They are businesses. So actually, should we be trying to get them to do these things? Or do they have a, a you know, is this the, the next place that they're going to be finding the next, you know, three, four, five million people in the UK to actually get as customers? We used to have individual liability uh, at one stage so senior managers if they were caught doing something bad could it could find themselves in jail i think there's uh, also a responsibility yes you can be a business you can be profitable but take the responsibility seriously if you are a former ceo of barclays like bob diamond and the net result of you having uh, or, or you know, fred goodwin the net result of you having arguably made some very bad decisions that had impacts on people's lives is that you go on being super rich and just live somewhere else uh, i think there have to be consequences when you're dealing with that responsibility because the prize for doing well and succeeding is massive but there is no downside it, it needs that balance i think ross yeah i agree but could, I, I think we just can we not rethink like how we manage as banks the relationship with the customer i think i hate to keep banging on about this progressive idea but at the moment it is that sort of walled garden and when you if you get in you're in and you can have access to whatever you want i mean I don't necessarily, if I'm applying for a current account, need a credit card or an overdraft or a mortgage straight away. Give me an X2X card, give me a credit builder product, and let's manage the relationship from there. I don't understand why at the moment it's you're either in or you're out. And there are some really inspiring and really, really cool fintechs that are picking up the slack on this. Okay, so moving on. the uh, In the US, this sounds... Like it's a, an entirely opposite story because the millennials with savings of $100,000 or more are on the rise. Like, what's happening? Are our cousins across the pond doing particularly well? I think Trump is making America great again. Definitely US dollars, right? <laughs> yeah, the dollar is deflating like crazy. So um, I think there's, there's, the dollar isn't what it was worth 10 years ago by any stretch. But there's apparently 16% of millennials now have more than $100,000, as you say. Um, and there's some really interesting uh, uh, kind of uh, points that come out of a survey run by Bank of America into finances. 63% um, of American quote-unquote millennials say they are saving. 54% uh, have a budget. 73% of that 54% say they stick to it 57 percent have a savings goal and 60 percent say they feel financially secure so is that just the middle class saying we feel all right or is this actually anything different from any previous generation i, I think sharon odea made an interesting point on fintech insider news that that everyone has this view of millennials as being these sort of 20 somethings you know fresh out of college but actually that population is aged we're talking about people between sort of 25 and 37 40 or something at the moment all right it's been a tough year <laughs> we've all aged Gotta stop having a go at us bloody hell so actually you know from that perspective if you're looking at someone who's just entering their 40s you would hope that they would have you know a hundred thousand dollars or something equivalent no? I, I get yeah that's the, the weird thing about these statistics is basically it has moved on by three years so you would expect them to have more savings than less savings although like kids and stuff i guess but you know like so yeah th this feels like a bizarre study doesn't it really is, is that 60 percent of of the people who have a hundred thousand feel financially secure in other words for the 40 percent of people with a hundred grand in the bank are feeling financially insecure like what are they living on it's mad um but this is exactly the point that i was making before which a hundred thousand dollars in savings if it's raw cash is a really inefficient way to use your savings in which case what they're really screams to is 16% of millennials are in fact possibly financially less literate than they should be with that amount of cash. 
I would be surprised if that was the case. I'm I'm guessing this is calculating some sort of um, savings asset value, you know, I like see. because in in the US, of course, four hundred one ks are much more uh, the, the the kind of the done thing. It's it's kind of your pensions and your savings all, all wrapped into one, as I loosely understand it. So uh, that conversation around money is very different culturally, uh, and I suspect this is why people have been quite forthcoming with how much they've had to save. And uh, I I hope. It's not all in cash, and uh, if if anybody is uh, thinking of saving all in cash, take heed in that. Take 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 heed in Charlie's words, because I think maybe not always the right idea. There, there are crazier things to hold money in, though, isn't there? Probably relating to the next story. I was about to say Simon's new coin. <laughs> so moving on, Robin Hood. Is that going to be the crypto exchange for millennials? Simon, I know you're itching to talk about this one. So yeah, Robinhood um, are an, an app that allow you to invest in shares and stocks and bonds and whatever else, and it's it's mobile only. And their unique selling point is that they charge you a dollar forty nine a month for access to that service, versus a lot of other services where it's a flat ten dollars a month and then plus a flat fee of ten dollars on top for every single trade. And when they come along and they say uh, we're going to add zero fee cryptocurrency trading the whole world goes bonkers. I mean, if there was anything more zeitgeist uh, right now, I, I don't know what it could possibly be. Um, so 78% of Robinhood's users are uh, 18 to 35-year-olds. They've got uh, 3 million existing users and one in three millennials apparently, what's a millennial anyway, prefer Bitcoin to stocks. Um, although if you look at the price today, maybe they don't. The really crazy thing here is over a million people have joined the waiting list for early access. And what I think's interesting here is this macro trend where Bitcoin has taught a generation of people that maybe they should think about money because things can happen with money. And so what what I think Robin Hood are doing is going, "Hey, hey, look, look at this, look at the shiny Bitcoin thing. Now use our app and do savings properly." So I was speaking to Well, uh, hold on. I mean, you're the guy who who's who previously has said actually this is more like a casino than investing. Absolutely, but let's 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 take that casino uh, grabbing attention, flashing lights thing, and then draw people in to do something sensible. So I was speaking. But aren't to, you drawing them in to actually do the casino thing? How do you flip that attention from something that is dangerous into something that isn't? That's the interesting question, and that's what I hope is going on with the financially responsible here. So um, I was talking to a large uh, broker dealer, uh, a client of ours earlier in the week, and they were saying that they have limits around how much cryptocurrency you can trade in a given day in a given um, set in, in, inside of a week and what they find is people come in and they try and trade a lot of bitcoin but they're not sophisticated investors so they're, they're kind of sitting there and they're going well i want to buy and sell bitcoin what's 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 this fx stuff and what's a bond and and so they start getting into some of the other products and then they start learning about other products and that is encouraging because it's drawn people in to do something sensible and the other thing going on here is if you're in uh, asset management or wealth management look at what robin hood have done because this is a different interface. I think that's the most interesting thing here. So are you trying to claim that Bitcoin is a sensible gateway drug into normal investing? I think it's been positioned as that by Robin Hood, and I think it could be if handled correctly. Okay. Well, that's the correct thing. Though. I mean, if millennials, if we make them young people, because I can't be asked to work out how the age range works, um, traditionally, back of the envelope calculation, they should be investing in more risky things than in more stable things. As you get older, you get more and more stable until eventually you retire and cash out all those stable Because things. in the end, supermarkets draw you in with those cakes and donuts and things, and you're going to eventually buy broccoli, aren't you? Because they're on the shelves next there, 
And I actually think it's a way of getting people to, to eat healthily by putting all of those sweets, sodas. Sodas are a great way of getting into water. What, what, if I, what if I repositioned your metaphor to being like, you can come in and buy a cake, but then we will not let you have any more cake for a month. And then you, we've got all of these other things on the shelf whilst you're looking at cake. You can have all the apples you want. <laughs> I don't sign up for that, Simon. I'm not sure. I'd actually, like my I, cake. I think I'm with you, Simon, though, because I think you, it's really expensive to acquire customers. So the qu- question is, how do you acquire them cheaply? Revolut did it with like instant currency, you know, um, great prices. And these guys have found another great entry point to acquire loads of customers cheaply as a sort of lifetime customer value in other stuff. And these will be lifetime customers. Bitcoin's bubble is ending. It, it's came and it's gone, but they, they capitalized on the Can moment. Can we quote you on that <laughs> in a future episode? <laughs> no, so... Uh, it's now on its way down. Do I think there's another Bitcoin bubble to come? Yes, absolutely. But that's a sidebar point. <laughs> Is that related to chicken at all or no? No. It could be. Who knows? But but I think that the macro trend towards uh, people dealing with savings, we, we've already talked about uh, a generation of people and a nation of people aren't saving enough. Mobile-only savings applications that have flat fee structures that are low cost to operate. This is the mobile equivalent of some of the platforms we had, the, the wealth fronts and the wealthifies and the nutmegs in the UK. This is the mobile-only version of that, and I think this is a trend we should see, look out for and see a lot, lot more of. Well, moving on to the next story, US Bank's Venmo alternative, Zelle, moved $75 billion last year and says that, they've, uh, that they're recruiting 100,000 people a day. What do we think about Zelle? They're, re- they're recruiting 100,000? Uh, well, enrolling. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was about to say all the ways about that. That's a quick-growing business. I've had a look, look at Zelle because it reminded me in some way of PayM, which we saw in the UK a few years ago, I think 2014, I want to say, where essentially you would let someone uh, connect, the, uh, in, in that case, a mobile number, but here it's an email address or a, a mobile cell number, uh, as a unique identifier. And rather than saying to you, hey, what's your IBAN routing number, account number, sort code? Actually, I have something that I use to contact you, you know, pretty regularly. Why don't we use that? And I think PayM struggled because, or at least personally, because when you actually put in someone's uh, mobile number, uh, if they weren't registered on the system, it just failed. He just said, computer says, no, sorry, they're not registered. Where it seems that Zelle has taken that sort of very modern approach of a viral spread by saying actually if someone hasn't signed up if you give me a cell number a mobile number then I'll send them a text message if you give me an email then I'll send them an email and actually encourage them to sign up and away we go you you can get that uh that payment going so it seems that they've they're attacking Venmo because Venmo is a separate app Zelle is being built into banking apps as just a different way of sending that money across and you've got to think that actually if you don't need that extra app and it's built into your day-to-day banking app that's going to do okay i completely agree with that i think the hardest thing is to get somebody to install something to to try something that they haven't done before if you can you know arrive at the scene of the crime as it were in terms of integrating all of these things into another banking experience they've got more chance of hitting a much more mainstream audience haven't they so it's interesting that they're they're seeing it as a versus though that the you know that as a battle um you know learning from what those guys have done and the good things that they've done but maybe just distributing it in a completely different way i think like yes it's easier if i can send you money via your mobile phone rather than having to get your iban and your account number into a code and all that sort of stuff i think the issue is with it being integrated into mobile banking apps is it's still transactional i still have to go into my mobile banking app to do it and if you've got someone like facebook 
more naturally positioning P2P payments at the point of conversation in WhatsApp or Messenger. So when I text you and say, oh, Jason, by the way, I still owe you like £10 for lunch, and it, I get a little pop-up that says, do you want to do it now? And I click yes, and it goes through. Mm. I'm going to do that. That would be lovely UX. I'd, st- I'd like to know how difficult it is or how much it costs to get money in and out of Zelle. Like if that's powering the back end of something, then obviously if you're a registered user, I'm a registered user, it's like a book-to-book transfer, zero cost. But I need to get that money into that book at some point and take it out. Well, from what I understand, it's actually the banks that are signing up. Therefore, it's not a separate account. In it's which case, do they just your increase account. your service charge or is it like on a per-transaction basis? Like that's what I want to know. Like Because that would be the sticky a, point. A charge attached. So, uh, and actually, one uh, the next story is almost connected that with that in some way because I think we've commented quite a lot on this peer-to-peer payments without the fourteen-digit numbers and and letters. Uh, it seems like a really easy way in which banks can can actually launch and get into fintechs. We've seen Vips, Swish, uh, Zelle in the US, and actually Tiki appears to be doing very well in the Netherlands. So they've just announced, or ABN Amro, ABN Amro has just announced that they've uh, reached two million users. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Two million in such a short period of time is is impressive. You know, like as a test in a market in a in a market that's not huge in itself. It's yeah, just it's seventeen really million people in the Netherlands, so that's that's a big percentage. Yeah, they say they've got eighty six percent market share with four hundred and forty thousand weekly average payment requests. Wow, well done! So, congratulations, Tiki. Yeah, I like this as well because it's a big bank doing something outside of the bank with a new brand. And uh, ABN also did New10, which is a lending business. Again, not using any of their core infrastructure, using entirely new tech, creating a new brand, and then able to operate in a different way as a result. And uh, ING did it with Yolt in the UK. I think this is a trend coming from the Dutch banks that we may see more of. Agreed. I think ABN AMRO, from what I've seen, have shown a real sort of openness to partnering with fintechs. They've got sort of solutions that sit across sort of you know personal banking um commercial banking um they've got an awesome sort of accounting robot that facilitates like straight through processing of accounting and all that sort of stuff yeah for any of our listeners that haven't uh, heard of or seen any of tiki we've got in in our pulse platform um some super stuff in there so yeah be sure to check it out cool and finally Arsenal signs cryptocurrency deal in a word for in a world first. Sam Maul, our head of Eleven uh, FS for the Americas, will be happy. I think he said it should be called Arsecoin. <laughs> which, which I, God bless Sam. If you're listening, we love you, my friend. Um, but, but this is really interesting because they are eventually becoming like uh, signing a deal to promote new digital tokens being sold by an American gaming software company. They are promoting tokens, promoting tokens that may or may not be securities under SEC regulation. Promoting tokens, register. Uh, you might be promoting unregulated securities. This could get you in a lot of trouble if you're not very careful. So I'd want to, I'm sure that the people behind Cashbetcoin have thought through how what they've built is not a security, but I'm also sure the SEC disagree with them. I can just see the the image now of the photo of the Arsenal team being taken away by the SEC. That would be that would be true fintech gold. First they lose Alexis Sanchez and now they lose the, the team photo. It's all going wrong. <laughs> they got Aubameyang. What Sh- more do you need? Surely though, there's so many different bits in this that don't really make a great deal of sense, do they? So the fact that a digital token is now being sold by an American gaming company, 
doesn't I mean, entirely... which bit didn't you understand? We've got a football team, we've got a cryptocurrency ICO. <laughs> and, and then the other one is, what is an official blockchain partner? Like, are the footballers going to be Well, it's like you can it? have an official drinks partner, you can have an official TV partner, I guess, and you now you've got an official... I buy all my drugs in the dark web using Arsenal coin. <laughs> is that what they're saying? And we only drink Bud Light. I'm not sure. Wenga Wonga. So apparently Cashbet coin will be advertised at Arsenal's Emirates Stadium with Cashbet to use Arsenal's brand to promote those new tokens oh my god holy in trouble with the sec run run for the hills don't do this i, I think oh it's gonna be amazing like what are they gonna do like me and me and you simon were at a chelsea game recently weren't we where norwich got beaten and i was sad but um that aside how are they gonna put this a- along like is it gonna be like on the tv at half time with the highlights when you're getting a hot dog and a beer like what does that mean yeah, I think that uh, the 11FS coin that I'm sure we've mentioned before should be a Norwich City uh, coin. I also want to point I out... <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think Dealey is going to go for that one. But I also want to point out in this article, um, in the express.co.uk, a, a journalistic publication of dubious uh, background and, and, and kind of some of the stories they put out, they say the ICO pre-sale will begin on the 24th of January at 5pm GMT and ends on the 20th of February. So this is where you could find out more about the ICO pre-sale. Wow. Like journalists pumping ICOs. What have we come to? This really bothers me because I I know this was a fun story, but like just stop this people with the ICO madness. I like the idea of issuing tokens. I love the idea of a nice little Arsenal token doing interesting things, but this isn't that. This is pushing stuff at punters and it's really quite sad. But but this isn't a mainstream newspaper as well that's quite terrifying isn't yeah, for it for those that don't know the express is yeah f- has fairly wide circulation in the uk yeah but they don't sell it in north london so it's fine only the chelsea fans will see it it'll be all right <laughs> <laughs> and on that i think we can wrap up a very special and personally disastrous show <laughs> thanks so much to all our guests for joining me where can people find out about you caroline uh, i'm caroline at fluidly.com or at fluidly and you want to give a little little push to what Fluidly does? Oh, sure, yeah. So at Fluidly, we build an intelligent cash flow engine. So we help small and medium-sized businesses get paid faster and manage their money better. There you go. You've heard it here. Charlie. <laughs> you love this one. Charles.watercapco.com. It's as simple as that. I, I'm still wondering where people send their open letters to you, though. Uh, they can <laughs> they can publish it in any well-known uh, femtech media. And, I, <laughs> and I'm sure I'll, I'll pick it up at some point. Um, and are you on social media, Charlie? Uh, I mean, I'm only on Facebook and I'm probably not going to broadcast that to the world. So. Simon, uh, at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. David? Uh, David Brewer on Twitter. And Ross? Uh, Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter and Ross Gurr at 11fs.co.uk. It never gets old. It never gets old. I'm actually not going to give out my social media for this episode. Um, But if you like what you've heard, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss episodes this good. And please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. 